Okay, so that's starting at Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot, with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. 
So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. And now we'll be jumping over to Matthew 12, and we'll be starting at verse 9 and reading through to verse 21. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put out. In his name the nations will put their hope. Uh, well, good day. Uh, my name's Ben. I'm the Uni Church Pastor, and it's great to be with you guys as we look at God's Word together, especially uh, today um, as we launch into semester. Uh, tonight is our second week uh, in our new se- sermon series uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so you might want to flip back to Isaiah 42 if you've got your Bible open there. Um, last year we worked through Isaiah uh, 1 to 39, um, and then this year we're tackling 40 to 66, that second major chunk of the book. Um, And if you were with us last week, last Sunday, we saw that the second half of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 66, uh, is a little different from the first. Because while while chapters 1 to 39 are addressed to God's people during Isaiah's lifetime, Isaiah 40 to 66 is a message for a future generation 150 years later. It's addressed to God's people in the future who are exiled in Babylon. Now, in terms of making sense of that timeline and seeing how the book as a whole fits together, uh, we're going to be looking at that in more depth this Wednesday night here at the Church for Hub uh, together. So if you're keen to get into that more, uh, we'll be looking at that in more detail. Uh, but of course, it's not just Isaiah 40 to 66. It's not just relevant for God's people living 150 years ahead of Isaiah's lifetime. It's also relevant for God's people living two and a half thousand years ahead of Isaiah's lifetime, which is us here today. And as we'll see tonight, Isaiah 42 has big implications for you and me today and what it means for us to find meaning and purpose and direction in our lives today. So let's jump right in. Uh, Because last uh, week, as Sienna mentioned, we saw God speaking comfort to his people in their darkest hour in exile in Babylon. But today we come to a part of Isaiah that introduces an important but mysterious figure, the servant of the Lord. And this servant will appear not just in this passage, but multiple times over the coming weeks. And understanding the identity of this servant is critical to making sense of Isaiah 40 to 66. 
And so have a look in your Bibles with me at Isaiah 42 uh, from verse 1. God says this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. Okay, so here we're introduced to God's servant, but, but we're not actually told who he is, are we? Uh, we're not told his name, we're not told his identity. But if you had to guess, who do you think it is? For those of you who had a background in Sunday school, you know the answer is always Jesus. Yep. And in our New Testament reading from Matthew 12, it was explicitly quoted saying that these verses from Isaiah 42 are fulfilled in Jesus. So that seems to settle it, right? Case closed, sermon over. Well, not quite. Because if you look more closely at Isaiah 42 in its original context, there are some problems with that. So if you've got Isaiah 42 in front of you, scan your eyes down to verse 18, which you had read out earlier. Have a look, Isaiah 42, 18. Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You've seen many things but pay no attention. You, your ears are open but you do not listen. What's this saying about God's servant? He's blind and deaf. Doesn't pay attention. Doesn't listen to God. That seems pretty problematic if it's talking about Jesus. Uh, and if that seems to raise a few problems about the servant being Jesus, well, Isaiah 41 puts a definitive nail in the coffin. Don't take my word for it. Scan your eyes just earlier to Isaiah 41. And then where we see that the name of the servant is not your Sunday school answer. Isaiah 41, verse 8, God says, But you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not rejected you. So what's the identity of the servant? Who is it? It's Israel, isn't it? It's God's people. Uh, They're also called Jacob, which whenever you see that in the Bible, often Israel and Jacob are used as synonyms to refer to the same thing, the nation of Israel, because the dude who who founded the nation was named Israel and also Jacob. And and notice that they're also specifically referred to as the descendants of Abraham. Uh, Notice that, because it's going to be an important detail that we'll come back to later. But what's clear from these verses is the identity of the servant. We're told explicitly who it is. So although you might first read Isaiah 42 as a Christian, it's tempting to think, man, this has just got Jesus written all over it. In context, it becomes clear that the servant is actually Israel, the offspring of Abraham, God's people in the Old Testament. Okay, so that's the identity of the servant. Uh, But what about the mission of the servant? What What has God chosen this servant to do? What's their purpose? 
Well, that brings us back to Isaiah 42, 1-4. So let's read those verses again, having clarified that the servant is Israel. And, and just as you scan your eyes over those verses, look out, what does it look like, the mission? What is the job description of God's servant, Israel? Verse 1, God has chosen him and put his spirit on him. Why? Verse 1, to bring justice to the nations. Notice also in verse 4, God's servant will establish justice, and that in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Now, islands is a word that the Israelites used for foreign nations across the sea. It's just another word they would use for those most distant nations far away. So it's reinforcing the, kind of the same thing that verse 1 is saying, that Israel's mission as God's servant is to bring God's justice and God's light and God's blessing to the far nations of the earth. We see the same thing in verse 6. Check it out. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, God says to the servant. I'll take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Now, that word Gentiles literally just means nations. Uh, The word Gentiles, all it means is the nations, Uh, And if you were an Israelite or a Jew uh, back in the day, it was a way to refer to uh, anyone who is not from Israel. So all people in the world fall into one of two camps. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, and it just means people from the other nations. But again, notice that Israel's mission is to do what to the Gentiles? It's to be a light for them. It's to be a blessing. God doesn't choose Israel just for Israel's own good. He always chose them for the purpose of going outwards to bless others, to be a light for the nations. Uh, you know, when I was uh, growing up, my family moved uh, around quite a bit, living in different countries. Uh, and when people asked why, I would explain that we moved around because of Dad's work. And so often people assume that Dad was a missionary or something, taking uh, the gospel to the nations. Uh, but I had to explain that actually my dad worked for KFC, So I guess you could say that his job was to take the gospel of fried chicken to the nations. You know, those secret, uh, 11 secret herbs and spices are are too good to keep to ourselves. The nations need to know. Uh, Perhaps proof that objective truth transcends cultural boundaries. But while dad's job was to spread chicken to the nations, what's Israel's job? It's to be a light to the nations and to bring justice to the nations, to spread God's justice and goodness and blessing without the cholesterol probably as well. And it's important for us to understand because when Isaiah 42 says that Israel's mission was to bring God's justice and to, be, and to be a light and a blessing to the nations, it's not introducing anything new. From the earliest chapters of the Bible, before Israel had even become a nation, God made it clear that this was going to be their mission and purpose. So let's go back to Genesis 12, where this all kicks off. And as we do, remember that in Isaiah 41, uh, Israel was specifically called the descendants, or literally the offspring of Abraham. So keep that in mind. Now let's go back to where we hear about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 verse 1, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will go you, uh, show you, the promised land, the land of Israel. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Notice that phrase, all the way from back in Genesis, all peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And this promise is so foundational that it's repeated multiple times throughout the opening chapters of Genesis. I mean, check it, Genesis 22, verses 17 to 18. God says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants, your offspring, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Remember how Isaiah 41 verse 9 had specifically drawn attention to the fact that Israel was the descendants, the offspring of Abraham? This is why it's doing it. It's calling attention to Israel's mission, their job description, their calling as God's servant to bring blessing to the nations. And those promises in Genesis are so important because they literally set up the whole rest of the Bible. Uh, The fundamental problem in our world is that our world is under the curse of sin. And that plays out in Genesis chapters 3 to 11, where humanity rebels against God and comes under the curse of sin, and we see this downward spiral. That's the fundamental problem of the Bible in Genesis 3 to 11. And from Genesis 12 onwards, the whole rest of the Bible is the unfolding of of God's plan that he started and spoke about in Genesis 12, about how he is going to save this world by overcoming the curse of sin with blessing. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is not a book of good advice. The Bible is not a book of moral examples. The Bible is the true story of what God is doing in this world To overcome the curse of sin with blessing. And in that unfolding drama, Israel plays center stage. If it's the school play, they've got a leading part. And if sin is the bad guy, then Israel's called to be the hero. God's servant to make things right. To be God's agent of blessing to all the distant nations. But that raises a big question. How are they actually meant to go about doing this? How was God's servant meant to be a blessing to the nations? Well, a big part of the answer is that it came through the law that God gave to Israel. Have a look again at Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, and see if you can see where this comes up. Notice that in these four verses, the word justice appears three times. It keeps getting repeated. Verse 1, God's servant will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, in faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. Verse 4, he won't falter until he establishes justice on the earth. It's picturing, you know, we live in a world that is crying out for justice, isn't it? We live in a world that that hates injustice. Uh, This is talking about, in Isaiah 42, a just society, one that is fair and good, a society where the vulnerable, you know, pictured in verse 3 as, as a bruised reed. It's so vulnerable. It's not useful for anything. It's just easy to be trampled down or a smoldering wick of a candle ready to just be snuffed out with your finger. The most vulnerable are cared for and protected from injustice. The servant doesn't snuff them out. He cares for them. And to make Israel be that kind of just society, God gave them the law including the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, and a whole bunch of other commands that ensure justice was done. The poor were cared for. God was honoured. And in Isaiah 42, verse 4, do you see where it says uh, that in his teaching, 
the islands will put their hope? Well, that word teaching is more straightforwardly, straightforwardly translated if you've got the ESV in front of you. You see, it's actually the word law. Or if you've got the old NIV, the NIV 1984, same thing. It's in Israel's, not just their teaching in general, but specifically it's in the law that the nations will put their hope. Because the law establishes a just and good society. The idea was that the surrounding nations would would look in and see Israel living according to God's law. They would see this a society where justice and mercy and love and honouring of God just abounded. They would be amazed at how different God's people were from the surrounding nations. And they'd be drawn in to experience God's blessings for themselves. Israel and its law were meant to be like an oasis in the desert where others would be drawn in to find life. That is the mission of God's servant. But there's just one problem. If sin is the bad guy and Israel was called to be the hero, the problem is that Israel too came under the corrupting influence of sin. The hero became the anti-hero. And throughout the pages of scripture, we see Israel turning their back on God and his good law time and time again. Instead of justice, they oppressed the poor. Instead of love, they lived by selfishness. Instead of honoring God, they turned away to the false gods of the nations. In short, God's servant Israel failed. Look in your Bibles with me at Isaiah 42 from verse 18, which we briefly saw earlier. You know, we've seen in verses 1 to 4 that, um, and through to verse 7, Israel is meant to be a guide to the blind, to these blind nations who don't know God's ways, who don't have his light. But then it calls out to these blind nations, these deaf, and it condemns Israel. Hear you deaf, look you blind and see, who is blind but my servant, Israel, deaf like the messenger I send, who's blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord. Israel, you hear many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. Do you see the failure of the servant? They're blind and deaf. Instead of obeying God's law and experiencing his blessing, they disobeyed and came under the curse of sin themselves. Instead of bringing God's blessing to the nations, they were defeated by the very nations they were meant to bless. And they were carried off by the Babylonians into exile. Look at how Isaiah 42 continues in verse 21. It says, It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness. To do what? To make his law great and glorious. But this, Israel, is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They've become plundered with no one to rescue them. They've been made loot with no one to say send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay a close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war, the hand of the Babylonians. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. God's law was great and glorious. 
a, a beacon of light, an oasis in the desert. And as you go through the Old Testament, you see little glimpses of that starting to happen. Like under Solomon, the, the queen of Sheba and these distant nations came and said, wow, how great is your God? How great is your law? But then Solomon and the kings after him turned their back on God. They disobeyed and were sent into exile. Israel was commissioned as God's servant to bring blessing to the nations, but Israel failed. And so they experienced sin, disobedience, and exile. It's pretty depressing. And you know, God would have been well within his rights if he called the curtains on history right then and there. He'd been patient with his people over centuries. This exile to Babylon didn't come out of nowhere. He'd been sending prophets time and time and time again over literally hundreds of years. He'd sent them prophets and kings and forgiven them and forgiven them. And God's servant Israel still kept rebelling. And God would have been well within his rights to leave us all under the curse of sin like we rightly deserve. But that's not what God chose to do, is it? Instead, he rolled up his sleeves and he stepped into our mess. In the person of Jesus, God became a human. Not just any human, but a descendant of Abraham. In fact, the very first words of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 are this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes on and gives you this genealogy. You think, boring, irrelevant, why are you telling me this? It's because the promises made to Abraham and to David, it was so important that Jesus was from their line because he was their offspring fulfilling those promises. And where many, the, the many offspring of Abraham failed, Jesus was the one offspring of Abraham who succeeded. He's the true and better servant. The offspring of Abraham who picks up the baton that Israel had dropped, who sets his mind to the mission that Israel had failed. Where they failed, he succeeded. He lived the perfect life, they didn't. He embodied God's justice and mercy and love found in the law. And yet in choosing to die on the cross in our place, he took on himself the curse of sin to save us from it. As Galatians 3.13 puts it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the nations, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So that promise that God made all the way back there in Genesis 12 to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring, that promise was fulfilled when Jesus went to the cross to take our curse. And in taking the curse of sin in himself, he made it possible for God's justice to be done without us having to bear it ourselves. And through Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his sending of the Holy Spirit, Jesus enables people from all nations, all the Gentiles, to receive God's blessing and the promise of eternal life with him. Free from the curse of sin. Jesus is the true and better servant. So is the servant 
in Isaiah 42? Is it, is it talking about Israel or Jesus? Well, on one level, the answer kind of has to be yes, doesn't it? It's both. But, but originally, it's clearly Jesus. And if, actually, if we jump straight to him, we miss all this, this depth of understanding what he actually came to do. Originally, it's clearly Israel, and yet its fulfillment was always meant to be found in Jesus. And in the coming weeks, as we move towards Isaiah 53, we'll see that even in Isaiah's original context, Isaiah was always pointing forward, that that mysterious figure of the servant was always pointing forward, not just to the nation of Israel, but to an individual figure who would come and do what Israel couldn't. Because in God's perfect plan, where we fail, he succeeds. And brothers and sisters, the last 2,000 years and right up until this very moment has been God doing exactly that. It's been God bringing his justice and light and blessing to the nations through Jesus. You know, it's so easy to lose sight of this and get mixed up living in our little Western bubble where cultural Christianity is on the decline and less people are ticking the box on the census. I mean, sure, those numbers are going down. But did you know that despite all that, globally, Christianity around the world has been growing every year for the last century? Growing year on year, bigger and bigger. And did you know that compared to other worldviews like Islam, Buddhism and atheism, Uh, Christianity is not only the biggest, but also by far the most diverse. It's more diverse culturally, linguistically, geographically, even socioeconomically between rich and poor. It's by far the most diverse out of all those worldviews. Why? Because that's what God promised to do. To bring his blessing not to one nation or one people group or one kind of cultural or just these people in this area, to bring his blessing to all the nations through Jesus. And that's what God's been doing. Even in this room, here in Perth, over 11,000 kilometres from where Isaiah and Jesus lived. The vast majority of us here in this room are not Jews. Most of us are from the nations, Gentiles. And yet all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, we've been brought near to him through the person of Jesus. For many of us, we've put our trust in Jesus. Uh, might be those among us who haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, but you're here investigating him. You've, you've maybe started slowly being drawn towards the light that is Jesus. We're so glad that you're here. This is God's plan that he's been carrying out through history, and he's going to keep doing it until Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So what does that mean for us today? For you and me in our little corner of the ends of the earth? Well, it means that we need to see our lives as one part of that great unfolding drama of what God is doing in this world. You know, we live in a world where people are desperate for meaning and purpose. Where an increasing number of people realise that simply to join the rat race and live and work a job and try to squeeze as much happiness as you can out of this life before you just get old and die, an increasing number of people recognise that's just meaningless. It's aimless. So people say, oh, well, try create meaning for yourself. And at first that sounds freeing, but until you try it for a few years and you realise what a crushing burden it is. 
But as followers of Jesus, we don't have to try create meaning or purpose out of thin air. We don't have to stick our heads in the sand and try to pretend things are meaningful when they're not. No, because God has revealed to us in his word what our meaning and purpose is. God is bringing all of creation towards this glorious future, overcoming that curse of sin through his blessing in Jesus. And we get to be part of that. That's the purpose that we were made for. To know Jesus and enjoy Jesus and to tell others about Jesus too. To be that light to the nations. To bring them with us into that relationship with God that we're going to be enjoying for the rest of eternity. That is our purpose. Not just for us as individuals, but for us as a community of God's people here at Uni Church. To be a community where we shine the light of Jesus with the world around us. You know, and you might be sitting there thinking, hey, hold on, Ben. That sounds kind of scary. I'm pretty bad at that, telling other people about Jesus. I feel like I screw up in my life too often to be able to do that well. I don't have the courage, and even if I did, half the time I don't even think I'd know what to say. And if you've ever felt that way, then you're in good company. Because I have too, often. But the good news of Isaiah 42 is that where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Where God's people fail, Jesus succeeds. The good news of Isaiah 42 is it's not all up to us. Because let's be honest, if people only got saved based on how perfectly I lived or how perfectly I spoke, then let me tell you, no one's going to get saved through me. But over the last 2,000 years, through sinners like me and you, God has been bringing blessing to the nations through Jesus. Not through perfect people, not through eloquent people, but through weak and ordinary people like me and you, who simply point others to Jesus. We're not the light. We're simply pointing others to him. So let's do that together this year. Whether you're at uni this coming semester and meeting other students, whether you're in the workplace and meeting other workmates, let's be a community of weak and ordinary people who simply point others to Jesus. No fancy strategies, no big special programs. Let's just see what God might do through us. Because where we fall short and where we fail, Jesus succeeds. When God looks at us clothed in Christ, he's delighted in us because we're in Jesus. Hear these words again that God speaks of his servant, Jesus. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Would you pray with me for God's help in playing our part in pointing others to Jesus? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we praise you because you are great and glorious. We praise you for your wisdom and might, 
that you set in, plan, in place a plan to overcome the curse of sin with blessing. And you wrote it in scripture so that we could see your great drama of salvation unfold. Thank you that we get to not only read about this plan, but that we get to be part of it in our lives today. Father, we confess that we, like Israel, so often fall short of your justice and love. Thank you that you've not turned your back on us, but you've sent Jesus to redeem us from the curse of sin so that we can enjoy your blessing. Father, please use us as your instruments to point others to Jesus so that they can know you too. We are weak, but you are strong. Use us in our weakness, we pray, so that it'll be clear that it's in your strength alone that makes a difference and that it's you alone who deserves the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.